Alain Prost won his home Grand Prix in 1989, but that wasn't really one of the main talking points from that weekend. In fact, it wasn't even the most interesting thing Prost did while he was at Paul Ricard. That's all to come in another episode of Bring Back V10s brought to you by The Race. I'm Glenn Freeman, and to discuss everything that was going on in F1 around the 1989 French Grand Prix, we're reuniting the team that discussed the 1990 French Grand Prix in our last series. So I'm joined by Ed Straw and Sam Smith. Now, Ed, I imagine you're not quite as fond of this race as you are the 1990 edition because a Leighton House didn't almost win this one. So for our opening question, what's the first thing you think of when you look back at France 89? I think it's the same as for many people. It's the Leighton House of Mauricio Guggenwin, upside down, flying through the air. Just a very distinctive moment for, for Leighton House. And actually, I now attach to that, thanks to a tweet that Mike Gascoigne put out earlier this year, he revealed the fact that he used that photos, that, those sequence of photos, to basically copy the diffuser to feed into the, the following year's McLaren. So that's an interesting little extra tidbit. But... It's not 1990 France, but it's a great Leighton House race, not just for that, but who got fastest lap? Mauricio Guggelman, his only fastest lap. So this is this is a it's second place in the in the fun French Grand Prix, but it's still good for the for the old Leighton House story, which always amuses me. Everyone loves the Leighton House story. Sam, welcome to your first appearance of series three. What's your overriding memory from this event? Well, I was quite lucky because I'd just attended the Silverstone pre-Bridge Grand Prix test. And the one thing I remember from that is not hearing any turbos for the first time in sort of seven or eight years. I've been lucky enough to go watching F1. But from the race itself, it has to be John Alesi's performance. Absolutely scintillating F1 debut. As a big F3000 fan, I'd seen him at Silverstone earlier that year and he'd finished third actually behind Thomas Danielson and, and Philippe Favre. So, you know, he was he was on the up, but I don't think anyone was expecting him to put in that level of performance in his in his Grand Prix debut and, and, and eventually finish fourth, of course. Yeah, as we'll get into shortly, I don't think uh, his own team, Tyrrell, were expecting him to be as good as he was. Now, this race has a special place in my heart as well. As this was the first time I saw... F1 on TV as a toddler. Uh, my parents had bought me a couple of toy F1 cars the previous year that I took everywhere I went, but I had no idea what they actually were. And that Sunday afternoon, my dad was channel hopping, which back in 1989 meant flicking through four channels. Um, and when the Grand Prix came on, I was I was transfixed. And apparently I ordered him to put my cars back on TV. Sat there and watched the whole race. And it was the first time, apparently, that I sat still for two hours. So from then on, my parents recorded every race just, I think, so they could sit me down and shut me up whenever they needed a bit of peace and quiet. So without this race, I think it's safe to say this podcast wouldn't exist, which is as good a reason as any for us to give it its own episode. Before we go any further, remember to get your questions in for our series finale, where you can ask us anything about F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. Just use the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or leave us a five-star review and you can submit a question there instead. A huge thank you to everyone who has left us a review so far. It's much appreciated and we do read them all. Uh, at the beginning of this episode, I said winning the race wasn't the most interesting thing Alain Prost did at his home Grand Prix in 1989. So let's start with how he really grabbed the headlines. And that was by announcing he was leaving McLaren at the end of the season. In a press conference with Ron Dennis to announce the news, Prost initially upset the local media by addressing the room in English. And he also refused to answer any questions that were aimed at finding out if he was leaving because of Ayrton Senna. 
Instead, what we got was a slightly convoluted explanation that McLaren needed an answer from Prost earlier than he was prepared to give one, so it was decided he should leave. Make of that what you will. Prost said at the time, they wanted a quick decision and I was not very comfortable to take it at this time of the year. And he added, we want to part with dignity in a good manner. There will never be a problem between McLaren and Alain Prost. Ron Dennis tried to explain it further. I'm not entirely sure he helped, but this is what Ron said. We have a very difficult supply and demand situation on Grand Prix drivers at the moment, and therefore it was necessary for us to ensure we could field two cars next year in the most competitive manner. It was important to have an answer from Alain to ensure that situation. Alain's decision is principally to benefit the team. It is not benefiting Alain Prost, and that's a strange situation, but that's the truth. Ed, we'll uh, address the Brazilian elephant in the room in a moment, but putting the Senna relationship to one side for now, does any of this portrayal of the situation from Prost and Dennis hold water? I think there's a certain amount of water being held in that, but fundamentally, the the (laughs) elephant in the room, it's the Prost-Senna relationship, isn't it? That is absolutely at the heart of it. And if you look at the two sides, I'm sure Prost would have liked to have not had to make this commitment not to drive to McLaren for McLaren at this stage because that would have slightly weakened his his bargaining position with with others. Ron Dennis was probably right to force the situation because he probably knew that that Prost wanted to go. But I can see why that team would want to make sure it had the the best possible driver lineup. And it may well have been that Dennis felt it was necessary to give Prost a little bit of a nudge. He probably thought this isn't really working and he could see the problem. And of course, there were there were plenty of options for, for Prost for the future that were turning up eventually. Obviously, he ended up at Ferrari, but there were all sorts of rumours flying around about new Renault teams and all, and all sorts of ideas that, that could happen. So I think this is one where it's probably reasonably accurate, if not the whole truth. It's just the same old story, isn't it? You can't have two roosters in the same hen house. McLaren had that for two years. Senna was the... I say the favoured driver, but Senna was seen as the future. But the very fact that McLaren constantly tried to re-sign Prost in the future, and he was testing McLarens even in the, in the mid-90s, says that the relationship there was clearly fundamentally good. And I think Prost is correct when he basically pointed to the Senna problem as, as being as being key, as, as, he, uh, as he did at other times. So, yeah, it, it's part of the truth, not quite the whole truth, but that was an untenable situation. Prost didn't want to continue alongside Senna, and I imagine he was using the McLaren possibility to increase leverage with other teams because he clearly didn't want to be there. Yeah, we've talked about some of those Prost near comebacks. Uh, I think we addressed the 94 one in the last series, and just last week we addressed him testing the car in 95 and eventually decided not to race for 96. So Prost was certainly right that this wasn't the end of their story. But let's face it, as Ed outlined there, the real reason Prost was leaving was that it was impossible for him and Senna to stay in the same team any longer. That relationship had really exploded at Imola earlier in 1989, which we will cover in the future. But as a side of how bad the fallout from that row was, Prost said he felt so demotivated he considered retiring from F1 on the spot. So that's probably why, as Ed said, Ron Dennis knew this was coming. Shortly before the French Grand Prix and at the Silverstone test that Sam mentioned earlier, Prost gave an extensive interview to Nigel Roebuck in Autosport. And this was before Prost had announced he was leaving. And there he said of the atmosphere in McLaren, I don't like the way things are here at the moment. At the race weekend, the atmosphere is awful. I first work for the team. He first works for him. 
But Prost also had a gripe that he felt Senna got preferential treatment from McLaren, noting that after Senna won the championship in 1988, he went back to Brazil for three months and Prost was left to do all the testing. And Prost said to Roebuck, it annoys me that I'm testing or doing promotion work while he's in Brazil, having holidays, then coming back with a fresh mind. He wants to test only when it's very important. Things are not equal between us. Sam, did he have a point here? He probably did. I think you've got to put it into the context of Prost having been at McLaren since 84 and essentially since Lauda left at the end of the following year, it had been his team, you know, and he had brought constructors or he contributed to constructors' victories, his own uh, brace of titles as well. But I think the relationship with Senna had been tolerably cordial in, in 88. There were some tremors, um, the most visceral of which was 1988's uh, Portuguese Grand Prix when Senna edged Prost so close to the pit wall, uh, which certainly got Alain's attention on that occasion. They did sort of speak about things after that, and things seemed to be cleared. But then, of course, Imola happened. But prior to that, going into the winter testing, as, as Alain said, much to his uh, chagrin there, that you know he was pounding around a, a, a drizzly Silverstone or a, an empty Jerez while, um, while Senna was on the beach in, uh, in Sao Paulo or in, in Brazil. So... Yes, you can see why he was a bit miffed about that, but especially because he'd been there much longer than Senna, and Senna had won the title in his first season. Obviously, his his relationship with Honda was 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 a special one, and we'll come on to that, I'm sure, shortly. Um, but his relationship with Ron Dennis as well, I think, during '88, that relationship sort of developed pretty intensely and became uh, this this sort of special bond, which had its own roller coaster element as well and I think Alan probably felt increasingly ostracized through that last part of 88 and into the into the the winter testing period so you can understand why he he felt like that but I think the underlying issue that Alan would have been considering and thinking about was very much just that relationship between uh between Senna and Honda and, and what that meant for him going into 89. It's the go-to Prost complaint, isn't it? We've talked about that before. Senna on the beach in Brazil while he's doing the testing. Mansell Watt was playing golf, I think he'd suggested, when they were Ferrari teammates. So it's just the standard thing. I think Prost quite liked doing most of the testing, to be honest. But yeah, I'd, I'd agree that was probably secondary to the fact that it was Senna's team that he didn't like. As Sam uh, mentioned there, there was also constant talk around this time of Honda giving Senna preferential treatment. And Prost has mentioned this in interviews uh, in recent years as well, in such as his F1 Legends episode on Sky Sports, where he talks about Honda delivering engines to races with things like Special for Ayrton written on the box. At the French Grand Prix press conference that we're talking about, uh, Ron Dennis felt the need to address some of this speculation. Ron said, There have been times this year when there have been results coming from the engines that have made us query their performance. For example, fuel consumption between Alain and Ayrton has often been different. We and Honda have been working on this difference since it became apparent after the Brazilian Grand Prix, which was the first race of the season. And he said, I can assure everyone, as I have been assuring Alain, that we work on any differences and try to understand them. They are not planned. And Prost talked about this a bit in his interview with Nigel Roebuck, saying, I'm not saying anything has been done on purpose. I just want to understand a bit better. Prost also said their driving styles often meant their fuel consumption was different, but usually in his favour. And then at the title decider in Japan in 1988, suddenly Prost was 8% worse than Senna, which meant he couldn't use more boost and had no chance of really competing with him. 
He said he was using much less fuel than Senna in 1989 with the normally aspirated engines. And in Prost's words, that can only be because I have less power. He also claimed that Honda told him after the Mexican Grand Prix that there was a problem with his engine where he'd not been able to go any faster down the straights than Senna, even when he was sat in his slipstream. But they wouldn't say in public or even tell McLaren. Now, Sam, we know Senna was revered by Honda. Do you think that got inside Prost's head or is it likely that there was something going on here? I think it did to some extent get inside Arnold's head, which was most unusual during his career, of course. It was a big a big test for anyone. Don't forget that Alan had been um, integral to the, the tag Porsche development um, in the previous years. And then Senna comes with an already formed relationship through his years, uh, those couple of years with um, with Lotus. So, you know, I, I think there was an extent to paranoia um, about the parity. But actually, when you break down what was going on in 89, you know, certainly at Canada and at, and at Paul Ricard as well, you know, Prost beat Senna, Senator Paul there and actually at Imola there was only I think just over a tenth between them. Um, later in the season is when the discrepancies seem to get larger after the announcement at, uh, at Paul Ricard but I think really in terms of what Alan was um, where his mind was it, it, it was it was a I suppose a um, an opportune excuse in some respects. It's hard to think that it was so cut and dry as Honda giving some, um, whatever it was, something extra to, to Senna at that stage in the season. I mean, if it was, you'd imagine that Osamu Goto, who was the, the Honda's engine guru, was keeping it from Ron Dennis, who I'm sure wouldn't have tolerated anything like that because, you know, I don't think, uh, I think Ron was lots of things, but he was a he was a pretty true racer. And even if it was on his own team, he, he wanted to see a fair an equal fight. I think it was more likely that Senna just adapted to driving a normally aspirated uh, power band slightly better than Prost, um, and and Alan couldn't have a you know didn't have an answer on on some occasions. He did on others um, during the races. Certainly in that in that summer period, he, he he managed to make hay while Senna was having difficulties and retiring for some for, from some races. But I think it was a combination of what I've just described and probably Senna being at the absolute peak of his powers. And and Alan was um, Alan was in a real real battle, and he and he knew it from an early stage when when Ayrton joined the team. By the time Prost announced he was leaving McLaren, Gerhard Berger was already talking about trying to take his seat. At this stage, Prost was rumoured to be going to Williams-Renault, which he actually put out a statement to deny, and he wouldn't sign his contract with Ferrari for 1990 until the Italian Grand Prix in September. So at this point, he was a true free agent. But of the talks with McLaren, Berger said at the time, I like Ferrari, but for the last year, McLaren has had the best car. I was speaking with them before Alain knew he would stop, now we have to find a way where everyone is happy. That's not so easy. I think 90% of the drivers would like to go to McLaren for free. That's not possible for me. Route one negotiating there from Gerhard. He also said, if you want to be world champion, you have to beat Ayrton Senna. It's difficult to get a better car than the one he has. I have to look to win more races now because I didn't win enough in the last few years. I want to win the world championship. Now, Ed, listening to the way Berger's talking there, do you think, McLaren was trying to sign Berger as another driver who could fight Senna for a championship or do we actually think that perhaps the two sides of this negotiation were 
we're looking at this in a different way to each other. I think it's very easy to look at it with the benefit of hindsight and say, well, of course, Berger was entirely picked as a number two because that's what he became to Senna. But I think it's important to remember Berger's reputation and stock was very high at that time. He actually had a very slightly better qualifying pace average than Mansell over that season. He had horrendous bad luck. I think he had 10 consecutive retirements and missed the Monaco Grand Prix after that fiery Imola shunt before he actually got to the finish of a race in 89. So if you're losing one of your, if you're going to lose one of your drivers, and Ron Dennis surely knew it was possible that, that Prost was going to move on, it makes sense to be speaking to the most viable alternatives. Well, Mansell was the lead driver at, at Ferrari. He'd established himself as that quite quickly. They loved him. So he wasn't really an option and he wasn't necessarily the most compatible driver. So then you start looking around, well, who else was there? There was Nelson Piquet who wasn't doing much in, in Lotus. So I doubt if he really appealed and there's no way you could really put him with Senna. So actually, Berger becomes arguably the obvious choice. You're looking in that Berger, Patrese kind of caliber uh, of driver. Berger was a very good driver at that stage, still still seen as, as on the up. I'm sure they weren't thinking, yeah, he's going to come in and beat Senna, but I suspect that if you look at the landscape, he was probably the best available proven race winner that they could get who would fit in with Senna, which makes him the logical choice. So, yeah, I don't think it was quite a case of of an easy number two. I'm sure Berger went in thinking he was going to win the World Championship and beat Senna because every driver does that. I imagine Ron Dennis probably thought he was going to be a de facto support act, but I think that's just because any driver you put alongside Ayrton Senna is going to end up being the de facto support act. Prost was that at times, and if Prost can be, then anyone can be. So, yeah, I think it's the, the logical choice. But we should also remember that I think Berger lost a little bit after that Imola shunt. He wasn't quite the same driver after that. That hadn't become apparent necessarily at this stage. But he was still a Grand Prix winning driver. He was still winning Grand Prix as late as 1997. So, yeah, a, a good option a big signing at the time, even if in retrospect we see him just a little bit as a, a convenient number two. Let's keep the driver market chat going because this was a wild time in F1. And the next story we'll tackle is Michele Alberto's sudden departure from Tyrrell. This one has often been put down to a clash of tobacco sponsors, with Alberto backed personally by Marlborough and Tyrrell then landing substantial camel backing from the French Grand Prix onwards. I've never been entirely convinced by that argument because Alberto ended up driving for LaRousse later in that year and they had camel backing as well. Now, Sam, earlier this year, you spoke to then Tyrrell race engineer Nigel Beresford about this period in the team's history. And I thought he offered some interesting insight that suggested there was some underlying tension between Alberto and Tyrrell already early in the year. So let's hear what he told you. In reality, McKaylee... And he was a lovely, lovely guy, really lovely guy. But he wasn't entirely happy. Um, for example, you know, he had he drove the 018 for its first race in, uh, or he was down to drive it for its first race at Imola. Um, but we finished the car literally sort of two o'clock in the morning, and all of the practice and qualifying sessions were taken up with debugging it and, I, and as I say I remember we were we, <laughs> it was crazy I mean in Tyrrell's own very carry-on way we had uh we had we were doing things in the garage in the middle of the night at Imola like Harvey wanted to uh under check on the the roll stiffness distribution of the car so he, he figured out that one of our truckies weighed about 100 kilograms so he had this guy hanging off the side of the car, 
holding on to the rollover hoop whilst he took um, he took corner weight scale measurements to try and understand how the roll stiffness was distributed on the car. It was a sort of crazy, wild, wacky thing that Harvey would do, but which also made him so much fun to be around. Um, but at that at that Emola race, um, Michele didn't qualify. Then we went to Monaco and there wasn't an 018 ready for Michele. Um, his was being finished off. It was, it was Jonathan's turn to have the new car. And uh, Michele just flat out refused to drive the 017 that was there as a spare car because he had he, he literally finished the, uh, the race in, in Brazil, the first race of the season, with, uh, with his overalls, his fireproof overalls, soaking in blood from the elbows where the tight, com- the tight cockpit of the 017B had basically chafed its way through the fabric of his fireproofs and then the skin of his elbows. So he refused to drive the 017, which was, which was fairly exasperating for Harvey. Um, but, of course, then he got his 018. It was Ken's 65th birthday, and Ken actually drove the truck down with the newly finished car in it on the Friday. He managed to he managed to clip French toll. He was very proud of the fact he'd actually managed to clip a French toll booth on the way down with the trailer. So yeah, Michele, lovely, lovely guy, but could be a little bit precious sometimes. Although I can't say I blame him for not wanting to wear through his elbows driving the O17B again. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess when when whatever happened and the falling out happened, um, and Alacy arrived, all of a sudden it was kind of the last piece of the puzzle of sort of a rejuvenation of um, Tyrrell Racing organisation that year. It sort of went from being the funny, quirky bunch with kind of rather different or unusual cars to really having a state-of-the-art car. And Lacey was the last piece of the puzzle because he, blindly, all of a sudden you had a guy who could really stand on it and you knew that that was how fast that car could go. Now, whatever those reasons were for Alberto leaving, Tyrrell found itself needing a driver at short notice. So enter wheeler dealer extraordinaire, and at this stage, not even a member of the F1 paddock yet, Eddie Jordan, who stepped forward with a solution to Ken Tyrrell's predicament. Jordan was running his F3000 team with Camel sponsorship, and he decided to try to get Jean Alacy into Alberto's seat. He had to get hold of the Camel people by satellite phone because they were in the Amazon rainforest for the Camel Trophy event, but they told him there was no money left to cover the deal. However, they did pass his message on to Tyrrell. That prompted Ken to get in touch with Eddie Jordan, where he bluntly told him, this bloke isn't going to qualify, let alone finish the race, but I don't have much time. Can he drive the car? Eddie was annoyed by the suggestion that Alacy would be hopeless, which he saw as a negotiating tactic from Tyrrell to, in Eddie's words, get their hands on Jean for next to nothing. But he said he wasn't going to be bullied into releasing him, and then an argument broke out over Tyrrell coughing up some money and a deal being reached for patches on the overalls and stickers on the car. Sam, do you think Tyrrell really believed Alacy might not be able to qualify in France, or was this just a way of driving down the price of the deal? Well, I'd always presumed that Ken Tyrrell would have known all about Alacy, but but apparently not. I think Ken was a little bit 
old-fashioned in the sense that he really valued Formula 3, something obviously which he, he did to great success before Tyrrell Grand Prix was born. But over everything else, I think it wasn't until '87 that he took 3,000 seriously. That was when he saw Julian Bailey win at Brands Hatch and immediately started talking to him for the following season, a movement which came off. But you never knew with Ken. He, he was such a wily fox. He may well have been playing some games, and I'm sure there was was an element of truth for that. But having spoken to Nigel Beresford, who was Palmer's engineer in 89 and then Alasis in 90, I think they genuinely didn't know much about Alasis generally because they'd just been so busy getting the 1989 car on stream. And when you look at Alasis' career, in 88, he drove for Orica in Formula 3000 and was very disappointing. I mean, there was actually nothing really apart from, um, I think, a decent performance at Poe, um, a circuit he knew well from Formula 3, that indicated he would be um, anything special at all. But then, of course, when he joined Eddie Jordan, he, it was a it was a renewed um, a renewed talent in some way. So I don't think Ken had seen that because they'd been just really, really on to getting the new car ready. And um, that included Ken driving the transporter down to Monaco, which um, must have been a sight to behold for those going down the auto route to the south of France, seeing Ken driving the, the transporter down there. But I think really there was a little bit of a little bit of tactics in it, but nothing particularly detailed. It was more because that you know Ken had been um, Ken had been exposed through the Alberetto relationship, which had uh, had faltered. Yeah, I think there was one of the quotes you got from Nigel talked about people uh, looking for the looking for Autosport magazine to check up on the F three thousand reports to find out if Lacey was any good. So maybe there was some truth to them just not knowing what his level was. But Eddie Jordan managed to get another one of his drivers onto the grid this weekend. Derek Warwick had injured himself in a karting crash and decided to skip the French Grand Prix to make sure he was fit for his home race at Silverstone. Warwick was close to Jordan, so he tipped him off that a seat might be available. And uh, Jordan put forward Martin Donnelly for the drive. And Warwick told Arrow's boss, Jackie Oliver, he was the perfect man for the job. Now, Ed... Jordan says that Warwick approved of Donnelly because he didn't want a star name filling in for him. Was that doing Donnelly a disservice at this stage of his career? Yeah, I think it was. He was a Macau Grand Prix winner. He'd won races in F3000. So he was a highly regarded talent at at that stage. It may just be that what Derek Warwick was thinking of was he'd rather have someone without race experience in F1 jumping in the car and potentially doing a good job. So maybe maybe he felt that that Donnelly was was fine from from that perspective. But yeah, he wasn't a a no hoper journeyman by any stretch of the imagination. He was very very highly rated, and he continued to be highly rated right up to the point that his career was effectively ruined by that horrendous crash at, at Jerez in in nineteen ninety. So yeah, I think if you're a driver, you'd be right to be a little bit concerned about Donnelly. And Warwick certainly seemed to be quite eager to only miss one race. So yeah. I'm not sure it's necessarily wise of Warwick to think that Donnelly was was not really a threat because he was he was such a good driver. So, yeah, you'd probably ideally want someone who you knew would just sort of trundle around doing a, an okay midfield job and they'd never consider doing. But there was always that possibility that someone like Donnelly could jump in and, and do a little bit of a, an Alacy. And, and in fact, he did a pretty good job when he, when he got in the car in the end. He qualified, I think, 14th. So that was a... You know, a, a good performance. So I'm not entirely sure where Warwick's going from. Coming from there, there's no doubt that Derek Warwick would have known 
all about Martin Donnelly. So it seems strange to to not consider him to be a threat. Well, also, that's Eddie Jordan's version of the story. So maybe we take it with a slight pinch of salt. Uh, on to our next driver change, though. And this time it's Johnny Herbert being rested by Benetton. Herbert struggled for consistency through the early part of the season, battling the agony of his injuries sustained in a massive F3000 crash the previous year at Brands Hatch. He'd finished fourth on his F1 debut in Brazil and picked up more points in Phoenix, but he then failed to qualify in Canada, and after that, he was put onto the sidelines. Herbert talks about this extensively in his book, and he says he considers himself the world's first disabled Formula One driver, so bad with the injuries to his legs and feet. And if you see um, footage or images from Herbert in the early part of that season, he was often cycling around the paddock rather than walking because he was in so much pain. Um, and that meant that he didn't have the strength to press the brake pedal hard enough, which was the root of all of his problems. When he got to F1, uh, Herbert wrote, in order to depress the pedal fully, you needed to deploy between 700 and 800 pounds of pressure and the most I could muster was about 250 to 300 pounds. The muscle wastage had become so bad since the accident that I didn't have any calf muscles to speak of. It was just skin. I was having physio, but because of my driving schedule, it was intermittent and therefore not very effective. Herbert says failing to qualify in Canada was the lowest point of his career up to that stage and that he was inconsolable. And he said if he had to choose between the pain of that heartbreak and the physical pain he was going through, he would probably choose the latter. We've got to look into this in, in quite a lot of depth. It looked on the surface perhaps like a ruthless decision from Benetton to draft in Emmanuele Pirro, who'd been on standby for the start of the season until Herbert managed to race distance in testing in Rio. But Sam, was this ultimately a fair call from Benetton given the state of Herbert's legs and feet? Um, I don't, fairness is is probably not the right word because I think it could have been done with a lot more humility and grace by uh, by Briatore. Uh, it, the right call, perhaps you know, and, that, and that's not just hindsight. I think where where Herbert was at that season, only you know five months after his dreadful accident at Brands. I mean, I, I was actually at Brands that day and saw the aftermath of it, and um, a, a lot of us there felt feared the worst really for him but his story is just such a great comeback story in sport generally for me it's right up there with louder in 76 and, and even someone like bob champion's emotional return to grant to the grand national in the early 80s it, it would have been nice to see some more compassion from briatori as i said especially um but perhaps this outlined the kind of ruthless character that he that he was and became in two decades in Formula One. Having said that, Benetton was on the up that year, had a decent car in the B one eight nine and and it should really have been competing nose to nose with Williams and Ferrari for that that second place in the, the Constructors Cup. But when you look at the the points that were accrued that season, the, the vast majority were were via Nanini. Um Pirro only actually contributed two points, and that was an attrition gained fifth place uh, at Adelaide in the final wet race of the season. And, you know, that was even two laps down on, on, on Satoru Nakajima's, probably his best ever Grand Prix when he finished fourth for Lotus. So the decision was very, very harsh. Um, initially, it was for this three-month period, but as we saw from Johnny Herbert, it took him the best part of two years, really, um, through 90, he raced in Japanese Formula 3000. And then, of course, he won Le Mans, famously, with Mazda. And he and then he got back on the F1 trail with Lotus. But 
probably the right decision could have been handled more more graciously and, and more humanely let's put it that way but at the end of the day it all worked out pretty well for for Johnny because he, he went on to win a couple of Grand Prix and had a great career uh, so I don't think anyone would begrudge him that after after you know such a cataclysmic incident it was probably quite good timing for him actually because he'd done enough to show he could do it and people could feel he was a bit hard done by but he didn't have an extended season for people to kind of factor out the injuries and in fact he never got into the good Benetton that year because the 189 didn't make its debut until France so he only ever raced the old car so it might be that the newer car more competitive might have exposed his weaknesses a little bit more and then he doesn't get the call up from Tyrrell to do a few races and then of course he eventually gets back in full-time with Lotus so I'd agree with you Sam that it wasn't the the most graceful way of doing it but potentially having that brief run at the start of the season was the best thing possible for his career. And maybe if he'd seen out the whole season, he might never have been seen again. I suspect Peter Collins might have given him a go because he had great faith in him. But yeah, it might have been one of those blessings in disguise, actually. Yeah, and Johnny does say that I think, it, as you mentioned there, Sam, it took him two years really to get back to full fitness. So I think uh, being uh, demoted, he was demoted to test and development driver and Benetton said they'd keep him on. But Johnny said he knew he would never race uh, for the team again, although obviously years later he did return. But Pirro's story here wasn't straightforward either. He'd been set to join LaRousse from the British Grand Prix, the race after France, in place of Yannick Dalmas, who'd been dropped. And Pirro was only missing France for LaRousse because he had a clashing commitment in Japan. But when the Benetton chance came up, Pirro not only backed out of the LaRousse deal, but also dropped his Japanese plans to take the seat immediately. And Piro said at the time, I was not committed to Lola in any formal way. I said it was 99% and that I would race for them. LaRousse has been good because they gave me a lot of time to think about it. Unfortunately, they gave me too much. The offer from Benetton came and it was a little more interesting. Now, Ed, nobody loves LaRousse more than you, but can even you understand Piro's logic here once a Benetton seat was on, uh, on offer? Yeah, you can't turn down a Benetton seat. There's a big difference between a Benetton and a LaRousse. Fun as LaRousse is, obviously LaRousse were struggling a little bit. They seem to hate their entire driver lineup that they wanted to replace because Alio was was right on the edge of being dropped and suddenly had a really good weekend before he retired in France. So yeah, Pirro had to take the Benetton chance. As it happened, he might have been better off in the LaRousse just from the fact he wouldn't be measuring up to Nanini coming in mid-season. That, that was a tough situation for, for him. So the biggest impact Pirro made in, on that season was probably that explosive crash at Hockenheim when he was demolishing polystyrene marker boards, which always sticks in the mind. But a good driver, Pirro. So yeah, he, he absolutely had to take that seat and try and make the most of it. But yeah, he, he was in a, a tough situation. The LaRue was pretty strong in 1990, so maybe if he'd still been there the following year, he could have done something in that. It's a, a, a good car, the, the LC90 Lola that they ran. But you've got to take a big chance. It was a race-winning car, a race-winning team, the, the Benetton. He just couldn't make the absolute most of it. I think Perro was a very, very good driver. I'm not sure whether he had that last tiny fraction of a speed needed to be an ace in F1. But he had to go in a top car, which most drivers never get. You've really got a feel for Dalmas as well, haven't you? Because he'd come back with, from this dreadful illness, Legionnaire's disease of all things. And and when you look at his career, he'd won in everything that he'd competed in, you know, French Formula 3 and um, in Formula 3000 as well. And for his career to just peter out for such a, you know, a, a sort of arcane reason is equally different to Herbert. But, you know, there was a there's a real talent there that, that was uh, lost to 
circumstances beyond his control as well. Did a right in Le Mans in later years, though. Not a bad uh, bad little sports car driver. Let's get back on topic. Uh, we'll cover off a couple of other stories that were in the news around this time before we move on to the action from the weekend. Firstly, Jackie Stewart was expressing an interest in running an F1 team in the future. His team was already making its way in the junior ranks at this stage, and he was talking about expanding from F3 uh, down into Formula Ford and up into F3000. But he also said there was a natural next step to take after that, meaning F1, and that he would like to look at it in the future. That prompted rumours that um, Stewart could enter a team in F1 as soon as 1991. But of course, we know Stewart Grand Prix didn't arrive on the F1 grid until much later in 1997. So, Ed, why do you think it took Jackie so long to end up with his own F1 team? Probably because he's Jackie Stewart, and I mean that in a positive way, because he does things properly. And much as I admire the the plucky amateur teams of this period that that struggled in, in pre-qualifying, that's not Jackie Stewart's way of doing things. So when that team came in, it was with Ford backing, it was done properly, it won a race in its third season. That's the way he does things. So I can absolutely believe that this was a, a plan that was working in the background. We know how, how Stewart operates. He will have been looking around for the money, for the investment, speaking to manufacturers over a very, very long period of time. And I bet there were threads already in his mind, already being worked on, even back in 89, that led directly through to, to Stuart Grand Prix. But he knows more than anyone what it takes to win in Grand Prix racing. And so he would not have done it without knowing it was going to work. And it did work brilliantly. And then, of course, they were able to sell on, sell the team to, to Ford properly and the team that Jackie started is the one that's still at the front in Formula 1 now as, as Red Bull, so he just does things properly. Yeah, it's one of my favourite stories from some of Stuart's uh, old rivals in the junior ranks when I used to cover some of those championships. I always used to get gripes about the fact that Jackie Stewart managed to convince Ford to bankroll an F1 team for him and then buy it off him as well, um, which goes down very well with some of the junior teams of the era that didn't make it into F1. But there were new rules announced in 1989 by the World Motorsport Council around the time of this race. Lots of them were relating to safety and also driver comfort, with bigger cockpit dimensions being enforced as well as more stringent crash tests. But the most noteworthy change that we want to talk about quickly was uh, they were going to specify that fuel cells would need a penetration-proof envelope around them. And there was going to be a push to come up with a specific location for the fuel tank, which would most likely result in a single fuel cell being located behind the driver and side fuel tanks no longer allowed. So, Sam, I'm going to bring you in here because my guess is this was related to something that I know you've written about in the past, which was Gerhard Berger's fireball crash at Imola earlier in the year that we did actually briefly reference earlier in this episode. Yes and no. I mean, I think the FIA had been looking prior to Berger's shunt about uh, relocating the, the, the fuel cell um, on the car. And I think what happened in Berger's crash was that the water radiator was driven back into the chassis um, and then that, that mass went into the fuel cell. If, there's an extraordinary photograph that um, I uncovered actually for a, a piece you mentioned there, Glenn, and it's in autocourse as well, that year's autocourse. And it's somebody, I think it's a fan at the side of the edge of Tamburello who has captured this um, this accident just before the, the spark ignites the fire. And the car is on its side. The, the, the left hand, sorry, the right hand side of the chassis is completely broken. Berger's torso is hanging out of the car with his uh, arms flailing around. I mean, it's a hideous hideous picture but it shows you that the the right hand side of the the monocoque was completely fractured and that the fuel is splashing all over 
Paul Berger as he does his final rotation and before it ignites. And I think prior to that, though, the FIA were addressing the situation because Philippe Streff had that dreadful accident at Rio, um, I think in March, just before the Brazilian Grand Prix and, and had life-changing injuries from that accident which in which there was a fire. So it was already been looked at, but this really accelerated the changes to ensure that there was a deformable cell behind the driver and a protection zone, as you mentioned, Glenn, behind it. But, you know, as, as we even saw in Bahrain just a few weeks ago, a tremendously violent accident can still inflict damage and, and penetration of aspects of, the, um, of where the fuel is stored. So, you know, an accident with those forces combined, it's, it's really hard to design anything that won't be penetrated. So, you know, even today, those things are, have been looked at and always learned from. I think one thing that wasn't properly looked at from that accident was a sort of rather haunting legacy of the runoff at Tamburello, which was completely absent. You know, there was, there was probably 12 feet of grass runoff um, to, until a concrete wall. The the Santerno River actually is immediately behind that, so you couldn't change it. And when I spoke to Berger for, the, for this feature regarding the accident, at a test a few months later, he and Senna walked up to where the accident took place and they had a conversation and said, well, there's nothing we can do because the river's behind it. So, you know, there we go. Let's get on to the next one. And of course, five years later, we all know what happened there in terms of Senna's accident. So, yeah, quite a quite a haunting legacy from from that 89 shunt. And, um, but from the one thing that we can say is that the changes made um, certainly saved other drivers from injury um, with the relocation of the fuel cell. Yeah, I think it says a lot that that Grosjean accident at the end of last year was was is now so rare, and it was actually a lot of people were harking back to the Burger accident because there's there's been so few fiery crashes in the time since, fortunately. But let's get on to the race weekend action. Prost took pole, which he said was significant because it proved to McLaren that he was still highly motivated. But the story we'll focus on from qualifying, much to Ed's delight, is Bertrand Gasho who qualified for a Grand Prix for the first time with Onyx, and not only made the cut of 26 cars, but he would start 11th. Ed, listeners of this show will know that you love a bit of F1 pre-qualifying, so over to you really. How did Gasho go from never qualifying before this weekend to looking like a bit of a superstar in France? Well, it's a combination of factors. Onyx obviously was a new team. They had a good little car penned by Alan Jenkins. Took them a little bit of time to get on top of it as you'd expect, because the team was still really building up. It really was a, a small operation. But Johansson had managed to get through pre-qualifying a few times. Gasho had had a few close calls where he'd almost got through. He'd kind of be one driver outside. He'd had a few pre-qualifying sessions where there'd been car problems as well, so he didn't have a chance. And, yeah, Onyx was coming together. So Gasho was was on form and he was able to outpace Johansson. Plus, he had the advantage that the, the Goodyear tyres were the ones to have in pre-qualifying at the French Grand Prix. They worked well with the with the circuit. And if you look, most of the runners in uh, in, in pre-qualifying were running on Pirellis. There were a few Goodyear teams in there, but that, that just perhaps helped tip the balance and Gasho was just at one with it. He had a really good race as well. So this was an Onyx team that was really starting to show that, that potential. They were still a little bit chaotic at times. Johansson had been... Uh, disqualified previously in the year for I think he still had a bit of wheel gun attached to his car when he was sent up a pit stop so there was still some building up to be done but yeah Onyx was was really coming together and and 
the tyres and the circuit configuration all worked in their favour on top of the fact it was a good car. And, and when Johansson had pre-qualified a couple of times before, he then made the grid reasonably comfortably because there were 13 cars in pre-qualifying. There were a number of teams that qualified automatically for, for qualifying proper, shall we say, that was slower than some of the pre-qualifiers. So it was really lopsided. And then, of course, Johansson got the point, so they escaped pre-qualifying until Minardi knackered them by <laughs> by uh, then having their three points at, at Silverstone because they, they reassigned pre-qualifying in the middle of the season. So, yeah, just reflects a good driver in a good car. The tyres were working. It was all coming together for them. Let's talk about things coming together for Onyx because around this time, they announced some big plans uh, revealing they were going to build their own wind tunnel and composites factory. And they also said they were in talks with Porsche about an engine supply. Onyx said the deal would only happen if they could sign a star driver. And they went as far as saying that whichever of their 1989 drivers, so Gasho and Stephanie Hansen, score the most points would be kept on alongside whoever this star driver was going to be. Nobody linked Prost to the seat. Um, but Porsche was looking for a team to fund its engine project and at this stage, Onyx and Ligier were understood to be the teams leading the running. Ed, where should we go with this one? Was this fanciful ambition from Onyx? And knowing what we know now about how bad the Porsche engine was when it arrived and uh, the Footwork Harrows team took it on, does the fact that Porsche wanted someone to pay for its engine project show that it was never really that serious? Well, it reflects the way that Porsche saw F1. It didn't want to put its own money into it. It was a motivated engine team, but it was very much a, a, a low-end project, shall we say, that was building on the technology of the previous years. For a team like Onyx, it made sense. They had a reasonable amount of ambition. Obviously, they had the uh, the colourful character, Jean-Pierre Van Rossum, who was the owner. And in fact, when he eventually pulled out of, of Onyx later that year, one of the things that was cited was the failure to get the Porsche deal, which sounded like the perfect deal, didn't it? It sounded brilliant, even if you were going to pay huge sums of money. And th this was a deal. When they eventually signed with, with Footwork, it was something like a $65, $70 million deal over, over three years. So it was serious money. But on paper, you think, well, Porsche engine, look what McLaren had achieved with the tag-funded Porsche engine. So you think, well, they won the championship a few years ago. This this is great. And yeah, it was fanciful they were going to be able to to get it, but on paper it made perfect sense. Had they done, it would have been obviously disastrous because the engine was was rooted in old technology. It was heavy, unreliable, and eventually it it dropped out of the out of the Arrows team quite early on in the season because it was clearly it wasn't working. But this this Porsche engine, it's quite funny looking back. You see how many teams were keen on it and were desperately trying to scrape together the money to do it, and it was just a, an absolutely disastrous project. But Testament to ambition, fanciful ambition perhaps as well. But at the same time, the Onyx team was a, was a tidy little operation under, under Mike Earl and it showed what it could do in, in 1989. So had that ambition been backed up by the money and a, and a good deal and the right engine deal, which wasn't the Porsche, then who knows what they could have achieved. Let's crack on with the start of the race. Senna beat Prost away to lead off the line, but that became instantly irrelevant when Mauricio Gujamin's march was launched upside down at the first corner. This is a massive shunt that I'm sure you've seen played at various times. Google it if you haven't. He locks up his brakes, vaults over the top of Berger's Ferrari and Thierry Bootson's Williams, bounces off the back of Nigel Mansell's Ferrari and then skids along upside down into the escape road. Now this is Gugelman's description of the accident from the time. He said, I got away very fast at the start and then coming into the first corner, I saw a gap ahead of me. So I went for it. I could see Mansell in front and I had Berger to my left and Bootson to my right. The, then the gap just disappeared. 
so I put the brakes on hard and the car started to twitch and then the front wheels locked up. I couldn't tell if it was burger or boots and I touched, but I was just launched into the air. There was nothing I could do to stop it. Uh, Sam, what do you make of that description? Because I've watched this accident back several times. It's, you know, it's burned into my memory. Not a lot of what Gujamin says there reflects what I think I can see when I watch the images. Well, if, if there was a gap there, then I think Mauricio was the only person who saw it. Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> and he just, just mis- misjudged his braking, didn't he? I mean, it's, it's clear as day. I think he was... He might have been got you know he might have got that whole thing of being sucked in onto somebody's gearbox thinking um you know I might get somebody down the inside or he might have been in nineteen uh nineteen eighty five spec Paul Ricard and, and then got the circuit wrong. There's so many configurations there. But he, he just seemed to break too late and once he'd done that, he seemed he seemed to come off the brakes at one stage and then lock them again, by which time he hits the back of boots and, and kind of burger combined, which vaults him up into the air. I mean, it, it was a spectacular accident, but it was actually relatively slow speed. And, you know, I, I, I think it was one of those that just looks tremendously spectacular rather than being dangerous. Having said that, if you've ever met Maurizio Guderman, he's a he's a big unit and was a big unit in the, in those days. He was always tipping the scales at the, uh, the top end, along with, I think, Cheever and Mansell in those days. So he was very snugly fitted, fitted into that, that Leighton house, so he typically knew he had, had sort of vac-packed the, <laughs> the driver into the cockpit. So once it becomes inverted, you always worry for, 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 for Big Mo because he's, you know, he's so snugly in that cockpit. But, you know, he, um, he was completely uninjured in it. And, and as I said, I think it, once it was upside down, it was just a case of hanging onto the steering wheel and making sure your hands and the extremities don't come out of the, of, of the tub. The, the interesting thing about that shunt was... Arnu then had his own accident, all of, um, you know, just completely smashed into, I think, Palmer. But then after that, and there is some footage of this, I think from a, they then used to use Foca cameras as opposed to the, the feed that we all saw at home. Once uh, Mansell gets going again, he's then hit by Griar, who, and this is going on to the main straight, um, Griar whacks the back of Mansell just for, you know, just just to add some more insult to injury for Nigel, um, and, and Griar gets away with it and um, and, and carries on. But the, the accident seemed to be going on for the sort of thirty seconds in and around that those first two corners. Admirable determination from the Ligier drivers to get involved there. <laughs> I, I approve of that. Yeah, I think Griar had taken a massive cut of the first corner as well to avoid the accident, and was probably then just enjoying the fact he was about third in the order and steams into Mansell as well. So, yeah, neither of them were paying very much attention and. I think I told you a lot about that lineup at that time. So we mentioned there that Mansell took a couple of big hits, uh, firstly from Guderman's car and then from Griar. And he said that the initial impact was so big he couldn't see clearly uh, for a few seconds and then had a bad headache afterwards. His greater concern was that his car was damaged by those impacts and he needed the spare Ferrari. Unfortunately, Berger was already sat in that as he ditched his race car before the start due to a suspected oil leak. So Mansell had no choice but to take the car that wasn't expected to last the race distance. And to make matters worse, in their haste to get Berger ready for the first start, Ferrari had left the remaining car in the garage unprepared and it didn't even have seatbelts. Mansell said they should have got him out of the pits and worked on what he called the bits and pieces on the grid, 
but they didn't. They missed the cut, so he had to start from the pits. What followed was one of Bansell's great drives. He charged up the order to ninth place in the first 20 laps before pitting because his tyres were destroyed. And from there, he worked his way back through what became a race of attrition, really, at the front to finish second, finally capitalising on an error from Patrese when the Williams went off track. Patrese had been struggling for balance, having had to take the spare car that was set up for Bootson when his own car suffered an electrical failure on the opening lap. So without that restart, Patrese wouldn't have been in this race for more than a few seconds. And as for Berger, ironically, his race in the spare car didn't even last 30 laps before he broke down. But Ed, let's look at that drive from Mansell, because I think this is quite a famous Mansell-Ferrari race from the pit lane to second. Was it fortunate that so many other front runners struck trouble or was this Mansell brilliance? A little bit of both. I think it was brilliant from Mansell. He was very, very quick, even in that first stage of the race where he's passing a lot of cars. If you look over lap two to lap 19, for example, he's the fifth fastest man on track and he's passed a lot of cars in that period, particularly the first 10 laps when he's coming through your your Martinis and your Tarquinis and your Nakajimas and your PKs. PK, <laughs> keeping good company in, the, in that difficult year with, with Lotus there. So he was very quick. He was helped by the fact Nanini had that suspension failure, did a brilliant job to avoid, uh, I think it was Nakajima's Lotus, he just managed to avoid hitting when it happened. Capelli also was having a good race and retired in front of him, Boots, and had some gear shift problems that he was trying to manage through through the race. He, he lost some gears and then Patrese also had an off during, during the race as well. But you need a little bit of help to come from the back up, up to second and I think Mansell absolutely did his bit. Yeah, the Ferrari was a quick car. So he had the machinery to do it, but it was a proper heads-down Mansell drive in a, in a car that he wasn't especially comfortable in because of the circumstances. So, yeah, I, I think this goes down as a, as a proper Mansell legend charge. The most significant of those front runners who was out of the running was, of course, Senna, who on the second start lasted a matter of yards before stopping at the side of the track, having lost all drive immediately. So that left Prost cruising out front. Mansell was coming from the back, Berger had retired, Patrese was in a car that wasn't set up for him. As Ed mentioned, Thierry Bootsen had some gear problems later on, but he also had a car that wasn't handling well because Williams had changed a few suspension parts on the grid following the Gugelman crash and had done that in a bit of a hurry. Prost delayed his tyre stop for as long as possible to make sure he wasn't at risk of any tyre problems later on in the race, and he even stayed out to pick his way through what I think might be the longest queue of backmarkers I've ever seen in a Grand Prix. And he went through all of them quite methodically and slowly before pitting and didn't seem to be in a huge hurry. So that meant that after his stop, he was only five seconds ahead of Nanini. But Nanini, of course, left the race in spectacular fashion with that suspension failure down at the first corner. And after that, Prost wasn't really under threat. So Ed... Do you think Prost drove this race like a man who knew he had no competition once Senna was out? Because in my mind, there's no way he could have got away with being that leisurely through those backmarkers if he was in a race with Senna. I'm quite amused. I completely forgot to reference the fact Senna wasn't in the race in the Mansell bit. That was a that was a good oversight because he didn't he didn't really start the race. I'd uh, I'd discounted it, but yeah, Prost knew he had the race under control, so it was a very Prost professional performance I mean that in a very positive way why take risks with back markers particularly in a race when you know there's something like five guys in their first Grand Prix so just just take it easy pick your way through in the end he had a big enough lead so this was yeah just Prost being absolutely in control 
understanding the race situation, not wanting to take anything more out of the machinery than he needs to. And remember, McLaren had had some reliability problems that year as well, so it made sense for him to be a little bit careful, doubly so with the other McLaren being out, which, while I'm sure he was 90% pleased to see Senna not in the race, there was probably 10% of him a little bit worried that he might have the same fate. So yeah, this was just Prost being Prost. He was in a commanding position, and there was no way he was going to let it slip by driving into a Jean-Louis Schlesser type or something like that. A bit harsh on Schlesser. He wasn't actually in this race. Uh, in the end, only Mansell finished within a minute of Prost. Uh, Patrese was third. But we'll finish the episode coming back to the only other man to finish on the lead lap, the debutant who was tipped to fail to qualify by his own team, Jean Alesi. This was a brilliant way for Alesi to announce himself on the biggest stage. He ran as high as second before his tyre stop, and he said the car felt so good he didn't really want to come in. But fourth was a fine debut, and let's quickly hear from Nigel Beresford again, as he can tell us the immediate impact Alesi's debut had on Tyrrell. I think the real, I think Jean, Jean, when he um, started that race, we were all, okay, take it easy, stay out of trouble, you know, bring it home and uh, learn what you can. And of course, we were absolutely bowled over when all of a sudden he's up to, to you know, fourth place or where it were, where it, I mean, he finished fourth. It was tremendously impressive um, performance from him. And all of a sudden, it was this, he was the spark plug that lit the place up. You know, all of a sudden, it was a matter of really looking forward to going to the next race and uh, and uh, seeing what, what could happen. Um, in reality, I think the next couple of races after France were, were a bit more low-key, but it was still pretty obvious. I mean, Harvey got, Harvey got the whole place together after um, after France gathered everybody in the workshop and said, you know, boys, this really looks like we've really uncovered something special here. So we we really need to uh, to raise it another notch because we've we've actually got a guy in the car who can really bring home and achieve some results for us. Um, and uh, it it lifted the whole team. His, his arrival lifted the whole team, no question. Sam, I think we quite often think of Alesi battling Senna at Phoenix in 1990 as the moment he truly stamped his mark on F1 and arrived as a potential superstar. But how good was his debut as well? It was exceptional. I mean, mercurial is a word goes hand in hand with Alesi, isn't it? But this, this truly is befitting of the description. Um, fourth place and running as high as second. Yes, there was some attrition. And and the zero eighteen Tyrrell was was an excellent car as, as went on to prove and became the basis of the of the nineteen the year after. Of course, he had some serious talent designing that car. Jean Claude Migio, of course, the aerodynamicist. Harvey Postlethwaite was managing the design. And Mark Hanford, uh, known in racing as the Ginger Genius, for his work with uh, with with IndyCar later on in his career. But he was a a, a real big part of the late 80s Tyrrells and that all formed this excellent package which Alesi was able to exploit. Yes, he was there at the right time. The car had had a couple of races prior to that. Palmer and Alboreto had scored some good results, Alboreto notably in Mexico where he got third position. But to actually make no mistakes, and don't forget, all around him there was chaos going on in that race for his first Grand Prix to keep his nose clean, to get into a good position and then to really kick on and 
be have a consistent race where he's on the same lap as as Prost and to get fourth place was was exceptional and just announced himself as the standout rookie um arguably arguably of of the 80s i would say i think that is as good a debut as you will ever get and it's no it's no wonder that Harvey Postlethwaite addressed his addressed his troops in in such a a manner as he did as as, as Nigel explained there that performance resulted in some good fun and games between Alacy, Jordan and Tyrrell. Uh, Eddie Jordan points out that Tyrrell never put anything in the agreement to cover the eventuality of Jean doing well. Ken was so convinced Alacy would be off the pace that he did nothing. And Eddie says that on the Monday after the race, Tyrrell were beating down the doors of his office to get a contract with Alacy. Alacy tells a great story about this as well on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson. So go and check that out. He said after his F1 debut, he went back to Jordan and said, OK, thank you. Because of you, I am in Formula One. Good luck for the rest of the F3000 season. That prompted Eddie to say, what do you mean, good luck? And Alacy said, I'm in 3000 because I want to reach F1. Now my contract is done, so thank you. But Jordan told Alacy and Tyrrell that he would have to keep racing in F3000 to win the title and could only do F1 on the side. Alacy did have to miss the Belgian and Portuguese Grand Prix, which temporarily got Johnny Herbert back onto the grid, as we mentioned earlier. But fortunately, Alacy won the F3000 title with a round to spare, which meant he could skip the finale to do the flyaway F1 races in Japan and Australia instead. So Sam, what do we make of Eddie Jordan's position here? Was he right to hold Alacy to that F3000 deal, or should he have let him go completely if the price was right? No, I think Eddie was... Uh, bang on I think he was right to um, look after his his own interests and don't forget I think it was around this stage that that Eddie certainly the idea of of trying to promote his team into Formula One was was forming and part of that was a financial commercial necessity of getting somebody to pay for it and he was he was priming camel to be uh, those people who could take Jordan into Formula One in in ninety one, it didn't work out that way. But at this stage, uh, they were bankrolling a good portion of the Formula Three thousand budget um, with Jean Alesi and Martin Donnelly in nineteen ninety. That expanded into three uh, three cars. So there was a there was a sort of Eddie was looking at things one or two steps ahead. I think here, uh, and also he was obviously Jean Alesi's manager along with uh, Jean's brother um, uh, Jose as well so there was a little plan forming here I think in Eddie's mind and, and he had to protect his investment because he essentially rebuilt a Lacey and he was an integral part of his team and leading the championship charge and they had to see the project out they had to see the championship out and that's what they ultimately did in the end so no I think I think Eddie was exactly he played it exactly right a Lacey missed a couple of Grand Prix. You know there was there was no pressure really on him in his first half campaign in F one. So I think it worked out okay for, for for all parties really. Everyone was a winner in this. Uh, ironically, the only loser was eventually Eddie because he he couldn't get John as part of his Formula One campaign in ninety one because Lacey had his meteoric rise had gathered more pace and he'd he'd then gone on to attract Williams and, and Ferrari's attention as we as we discussed in the uh, 1990 episode. Yeah, it was slightly naive of Alacy to think that he could just take off and leave F3000 where it was and it's probably sensible of, of Jordan to, to force him to stay on. After all, when you're in those sort of categories, results are absolutely everything. Alacy wasn't absolutely certain of winning the championship at that point so he couldn't even have said that, oh, well, we were going to win the championship because they were still 
other drivers who could, who could win it. Uh, quite a few. It's still really tight. Just the way things went in F3000, you tend to get quite a lot of unreliability and the like. So people tended not to vanish into the distance. So, yeah, it's baffling that Lacey would think that's a good idea. I do quite like drivers combining F1 with a little bit of junior category at the same time. We don't often see that. I think Jaime Algasuari was probably the most recent to, to have done that when he combined a bit of F1 with Renault 3.5. So, uh, so I enjoy seeing him do that. Yeah, and Alessi has said, actually, he was grateful Eddie kept him on because Jean went through the rest of his career without too many accolades. He only won one Grand Prix, and he's quite happy that he's got a championship to his name in F3000. But we'll leave it there for France 1989, a race I will forever be grateful for, for getting me hooked on F1. Fortunately, there was a fair bit going on to talk about around this time, so it more than justified getting an episode. Thanks to Ed and Sam. We've now run out of Paul Ricard F1 races in this era. So who knows when we'll get the two of you on the same episode again. But we'll find we'll find another reason to talk about backmarkers, Formula 3000, pre-qualifying and all your, all your favourite subjects. Uh, remember to get your questions in for our series finale by using the hashtag BringBackV10s. Ask us anything you like about this V10 era. And if you'd like to submit a five-star review of a question, we'd be delighted to hear from you as well. Next week, by coincidence, we're sticking with the French Grand Prix theme, uh, but we're jumping forward in time 10 years to the 1999 race, where Heinz Held Frentzen and Jordan took a famous victory on a crazy afternoon at Magny Court.